0: And I will just start by saying this, I am really glad that tonight is not the first Sunday of family uh, gathering with the kids because tonight's gonna be a little weird. Tonight's gonna be a little explicit, but I'm not gonna curse at you. uh, So you don't have to put the parental advisory sticker on it, but the content of tonight's verses in Genesis six, if you're familiar with six, one to eight, you know, it's a little weird. And since I like sci-fi and since I like kind of fantasy genre, I'm, I'm right at home with this text. Okay. So I think you guys are going to enjoy tonight because it's not your typical text for a sermon, but I'm really glad that the schedule landed uh, with me tonight. And so here we go. So tonight, what are we talking about? We're talking about, um, just to be really blunt, demons taking human form. Having sex with women, producing a race of giants, as in macro view of the corruption of the whole world by which God responded and killed everybody on the planet with the exception of eight people. A little explicit, okay? So we're gonna jump into the text. I'm gonna show you through the text. I'm not gonna jump out of the text, only to quote a few quotes that will highlight the text. And my hope is that you'll see what I see in the Bible tonight. So pay attention uh, and let's jump right in. So I wanna start first where Pete left off last week, because what I want you to see as we travel through the book of Genesis, that there is connections to the verses and chapters. That might seem obvious to you, but we often read the Bible disconnected from the chapters that flowed before. And we often like to isolate verses, uh, especially in your kind of like, topical devotional reading we take like one or two verses and then we get like pages of flowery encouragement and not that that's always wrong it's not Spurgeon was very good at taking half a verse of scripture or even two or three words and creating a 45 50 minute sermon out of them so I'm not hating on Spurgeon certainly not but what I'm saying is often when we uh chop up verses like that. We forget the wider context. Okay. So that, that's what I'm trying to say. So what I want to do is start where Pete left off. Let's read together. And Adam knew his wife. Again, the word "know" clearly means intimacy Uh, throughout the old and new Testament to know somebody is a biblical way of saying to be intimate, which then produces children. You can use uh, your logic to figure that out. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Last week's sermon. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now we're going to jump in at five, one to five. We're skipping five, but I'm going to give you the overview right here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter five is the genealogy of Adam. If you want to go back and read it yourself, do that. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred thirty years. He fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Can you imagine living 930 years? You know why? It's because all the food was organic. He never tasted mac and cheese. That's that's what the deal is right there. All organic produce and, and fresh meat. I mean, that's the answer. All right. Here's the deal. You saw Cain and Abel last week. Okay. Abel was righteous by faith. We saw that at the end of Pete's sermon. And Cain was of the evil one, the serpent. And so the evil one got victory over the righteous one, righteous by faith. And so now what are we to do? Remember Genesis 3.15, the promise inherent in the curse on the serpent, the Satan figure was this. One day there is coming a seed of the woman who will crush your head. And from your line, from your offspring, that offspring will strike the heel of that one who will crush your head. And so what Genesis is doing here in chapter five is showing the line of, of people that God is going to keep the promise of the snake crusher. Okay. So no doubt, Eve probably thought Seth, he's the one who will deliver us. He's the one who will crush the head of the serpent. But little did we know it would be a long descendant from Seth. Okay. Now, when you jump to 528 and 32, I'm just jumping to the end of the chapter. Look what happens. We're tracing the line of Seth. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Noah. Saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so from Seth, generation, 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 Lamech, not the Lamech, In the line of Cain. This is a different Lemmech. Okay, think of all the Johns you know, and all the Jims you know. Okay, you can have the same name in the same chapter and it'd be a different person. Lemmek's son is Noah, and Lemmoch's thinking, This is the snake crusher. This is the one who will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3:15. He shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Verse 30. Lemmech lived after he fathered Noah. 595 years. Uh, Lemek also inv- invented mac and cheese. That's not in the text, but that's why he only lived 595 years as opposed to 900 plus. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lemek were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Hem and Japheth. And so what you can see happening here is the line of Seth is being traced and God is fulfilling his promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Okay, that's macro. Now let's jump into chapter six because it's the very next verse and we'll start at six one. i I'll read the whole thing and then we'll start to unpack it. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose, chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in or my spirit shall not contend with man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. What a strange text. Very strange indeed. Now, I want to give you a basic explanation, and then we're going to look at it biblically and into the New Testament. Okay. So the, the picture here is men are multiplying on the earth. There are verse two sons of God. Now, interestingly, that phrase in the Hebrew sons of God is used to represent angels in many, many, many passages of scripture. Okay, I have a few of them to show you. So where are we at? We're right here. Verse two, when the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, they took them. And what did they do? Well, verse four, when the sons of God, same phrase, came into the daughters of man, it's a very flowery way of talking about intercourse. They bore children to them. Okay? So I'm taking a plain reading of the text and saying, that's what happened. Somehow, some way, angels took on human form and were able to cohabitate and create life that were somehow angelic and human being mixed. Okay, now let's, let's dig into the text. Okay, I'm not just going to stay here. Job 1, you know about Job 1 and 2. Uh, Satan is appearing before God along with the divine council, meaning those who report to God of the angelic world. And look at the verses. Now there was a day when the sons of God, talking about angelic beings. Remember, Satan is a fallen angel. And so there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That's God. God Almighty, Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. Look at verse 2, 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, same uh, Hebrew phrase, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. Now, if we jump to the end of Job, 38 is where God starts talking to Job. Dress yourself like a man. I will question you. And one of the things he says is, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Like, were you alive when I said, let there be? Tell me if you have understanding. Now look at verse seven, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Verse seven is a phrase that, that means when God was creating the heavens and the earth, the angels were roaring with praise. They were praising God, being blown away at his creative power and beauty. That's what the text says. Where were you when the morning stars sang together, morning stars meaning angels, and all the sons of God, the angelic beings, shouted for joy? Okay. Here's Psalm 98, 5 to 7. I just chose a few. I could go on and on and on, but I knew we wouldn't have time to go on and on and on. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Holy ones, that's the angels. There's an assembly of holy angels. They're praising God for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, who among the heavenly beings, Hebrew, there's the word sons of God or sons of might, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. What does that mean? That means angels, God has at his throne and at his disposal angelic beings that he can dispatch to accomplish his purposes. If you want some New Testament on that, think of Hebrews chapter 1. Think of uh, the other passages in Hebrews. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Who is that? Us. Christians. God says, or, or the writer of Hebrews says... Are not all angels ministering spirits, not human beings, spirits, people without bodies, sent to do what? Serve those who will inherit salvation. What does that mean? You, you, so are you saying that angels minister to me in some way, shape, or form? I would say yes, they do. In fact, there's a, there's a strange passage in Matthew where Jesus is warning about little children and taking care of them. And here's what he says. He says, listen, be careful how you treat these little ones because their angels always behold the face of my father in heaven. T-H-E-I-R, their angels, like angels assigned to children, always behold and report to God the father. So be careful how you treat little ones. I I don't know what to make of that other than guardian angels. What do you make of it? ministering spirit sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Speaking of angelic beings. Now even the demons have to report to God. Uh, they are under his control. They are rebellious, but they are rebellious under his sovereignty. They unwillingly accomplish his will. Thus, Job chapter one and two, Satan asks permission of God to do certain things to Job. And he says, you can do this, but you can't do this. You can do this, but you can't do this. And Satan obeys because he has to. Okay. Satan and demons accomplish God's will unwillingly. And he gives them a certain amount of freedom in the earth. And it appears in Genesis six, they had more freedom than they do now. And so let's look at that. Uh, so again, where are we? We're here. Genesis six, one to four. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. Okay. So we're talking about human beings, women, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. A plain rendering of that is angels somehow took women who they thought were attractive and they took them to themselves as wives. You see, that's weird. Like friends, we're talking about a God who spoke and all things came to existence. Is that, is that not weird? We just talked about angels watching over little babies. Is that not weird? It, it's not without the realm of biblical possibilities that this is the case. Here's what I would argue. We have a problem with this because we are steeped and soaked in a secular age. Trust the science, trust the science. Here's the problem, science deals with the material, physical world. We have no science to deal with the supernatural world, do we? And so every public school and most all universities are steeped in materialistic evolutionary worldview. And so you can't help but soak a little bit of that in. Right? Just like the law of gravity that's all by itself off, having nothing to do with God, or is it that God set up gravity as a means to accomplish us being able to sit here and not fly off the earth? So you could listen to a sermon and get something out of it. But God's behind gravity. It's not a law outside of itself, and God has nothing to do with it. You see, we are living in a material world, but we do not live in an only material world. We live in a world that is both supernatural and natural. We live in a world that is both physical and supraphysical. Okay? And so here, this is saying that the supernatural, the spirit realm, Became, or came in flesh in some way, shape, or form, and I'm going to show you in the New Testament this is not also without the realm, without possibility in the Bible. Now, what happened? God says in response to this, verse three: My spirit shall not abide in, or my spirit shall not contend with man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be one twenty. Now look at verse four: The nephilim run the earth in those days. And also afterward, we'll deal with that in a little bit. When? When the sons of God, that phrase that we just looked at in Job and Psalms, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and what happened? Bore children to them. What kind of children? Nephilim children. Giants. The sons of Anak that were so giant that David looked like a grasshopper to Goliath. Goliath was a Nephilim, a massive man, huge. Anak, huge, the sons of Anak, huge. So the Nephilim came from this cohabitation, and these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. I've had this view Uh, since my very early, early Christian days. You want to know why? Because one of my very first and most epic study tools as a brand new Christian was the John MacArthur Study Bible. And John MacArthur takes this view. And I know some of you are like, what? MacArthur takes? Yes, he does. So I also have been for years, I've been a Christian for about 24 years. I've been building on this view and, and thinking about it and looking into it for many, many years. Okay. Uh, most recently, there's a gentleman named Mike Heiser. Sadly, he just died on Monday. Uh, he's a, a biblical Hebrew scholar, and he has written, I think, most extensively and most clearly on this topic. Here's what he would say. Ready? This is Mike Heiser. Christians still balk balk at this interpretive option for Genesis 6, 1-4. Angels assumed human flesh and somehow impregnated women birthing a race of giants. That's that's my explanation of what is going on in Genesis six, one to four. Back to Mike Heiser. The ancient reader would have no problem with it, but for moderns, it seems impossible that a divine being could assume human flesh and do what this passage describes. This objection is odd. Since this interpretation is less dramatic than the incarnation of Yahweh as Jesus Christ. Here's the argument? That's far less amazing than the creator and sustainer of the universe becoming human flesh, but yet we're cool with that. How is the virgin birth of God as a man more acceptable? What isn't mind-blowing about Jesus having both a divine and human nature fused together the hypostatic union. For that matter, what doesn't offend the modern scientific mind about God going through a woman's birth canal and enduring life as a human, having to learn how to talk, walk, eat with a spoon, be potty trained, and then go through puberty? God went through puberty. All these things are far more shocking than Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And yet, this is what Scripture explicitly affirms when it informs us that the second person of the Godhead became man. God became a man from conception onward. And guess what? Right now is a resurrected human being in heaven right now. You could physically grab him. He could eat broiled fish as he did after the resurrection. And one day we are promised that we will be like him in a body like his. Okay. Two New Testament passages that you might have read, but not realized these were pointing to Genesis six, one to four. Okay. One of them is Jude one. There's only one chapter in Jude. 5-10. 5-10. through 10. Now look at this. I'm going to unpack it slowly for you so you see that this is definitely connected to Genesis 6, 1-4. Now I want to remind you, by the way, Jude is Jesus' half-brother, along with James. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Wait, Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt? That's what he just said. Because isn't God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So what the Father does, the Son does, and what the Son does, the Spirit does? Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And that's uh, the whole generation that came out of Egypt had to die off. And then the next generation could enter the promised land. Now watch this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now, I think verse six is explicitly talking about Genesis six, one to four. Now, I think that because of the rest of the context, listen to it. Just as, so angels... Doing what? Not keeping their own position of authority, leaving their proper dwelling in the angelic realm, coming into the human realm? Look, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, likewise did what? Indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Or in the Greek, different flesh. What do you do with that? Angels left their post, pursued different flesh, and just like Sodom and Gomorrah, sinned sexually. If that's not pointing to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, I don't know what is. But look, we can keep going. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, yet in like manner, these, these are the people now that Jude is warning his, his receivers of the letter about, he's, he's warning them. In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, just like the angels, just like those who left Exodus and had to die off, what did they do? They rejected the authority of Moses and God and they defiled the flesh sexually and blaspheme the glorious ones. That is a point uh, that's pointing to angels, glorious ones, uh, the stars of heaven, the sons of God. But look, verse nine, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, Now, now look, you see here, the context is angelic, right? First, we're talking about these angels who sinned, went after different flesh. Now we're talking about the devil and Michael, the archangel. Clearly the context fits. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people whom Jude is warning about, these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, now we could go on, but we don't have time. I want you to see that clearly in the context, we're talking about sexual immorality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened there, and it's coming in Genesis. Okay, But also, the the supernatural context is here. The devil, Michael the archangel. All right, where else in the New Testament? 2 Peter. Almost it's almost like Jude could have wrote this, but he didn't. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, that's what Jude just said. Some manuscripts say pits, committed them to pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, now look at the context. Noah, the flood, verse five, flowing in context. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by, now look at the context here, sexual immorality, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example, Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day he was torment he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials or temptations. you could translate that trials or temptations and to keep the Unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. What we just saw in Jude. In Greek, that is who go after the flesh. So, wh- what are you saying, Chris? What I'm saying is, I think Jude and Peter are both confirming what I just said about Genesis 6, 1-4. That this is indeed what happened. Somehow, someway, angels cohabitated with women and produced a race of giants in English called the Nephilim. And they were in the earth after that time, which we'll get to that in just a minute. Here's my Kaiser one more time. Genesis 6, 4 tells us, there were Nephilim on the earth before the flood and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humankind. The when in this verse could be translated whenever. Here, I'll go back to it. Nope, too far. There you go. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when... The sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Okay, so when? There's, there's two options Mike takes. I think this is helpful. How could it be that they were on the earth after the flood, right? If only Noah and his wife and then his three sons and their wives survived, like how did, how did the Nephilim come back? Mike has two options, I think. Both are good. I like one better. Here's the first one. The flood was local. Wait a minute, the flood was local? Have you ever seen any pictures of Katrina? Do you remember those pictures? Do you remember, have you ever seen, remember when Dallas was underwater? You remember that? Like it was dry and sunny here in Pittsburgh. It is very possible that one place on the globe could be completely underwater and another place, it'd be sunny and nice out. It's very possible. Okay, so so the flood was local perhaps, And the Nephilim had spread out to a place where there was no flood. It's possible. I don't technically like that interpretation, but that's possible. Here's the other one, right? Here's Mike Heiser. The when in the verse could be translated whenever, whenever, whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of man thereby suggesting a repetition of these pre-flood events after the flood. In other words, since Genesis 6-4 points forward to the later giant clans, the phrasing could suggest that other sons of God fathered more Nephilim after the flood. As a result, there would be no survival of the original Nephilim, so the post-flood dilemma would be resolved. A later appearance of other Nephilim occurred by the same means as before the flood. It's possible. You definitely have, when you start reading the Old Testament with an eye to the giants, it gets weird. One of the giants had a 10-foot bed made of iron. That's how big he was. You look at David and Goliath, and the dude is massive, okay? And you're like, how does that happen? Well, perhaps this is the answer. And they're always, look at this, the enemies of God and his people, the line of the serpent. And they're always battling against the line of promise through whom the Messiah would come. It's very interesting. And so you have this Good versus evil, but again, the good, not because they're good in and of themselves, but because grace is bestowed upon them, because they are the inheritors of the promise as we are. So I I think this is very plausible. I think it's very possible. And there are many strange, bizarre passages in the Bible, like the witch of Endor, who is able to call up the dead spirit of Samuel in ghost form and have a conversation with him. Remember that? That's not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Ghosts are in the Bible. They're all over the Bible. You just got to know where to look. Say, where? What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Standing next to Jesus, you have Moses and Elijah having a conversation with Jesus. You'd be like, wait, they've been dead for thousands of years. Right. Ghosts, right? I'll just let that one sit there. <laughs> So I think what this says is exactly what it is. I would recommend you all going and going on YouTube and watching a documentary by Mike Heiser called The Unseen Realm. Uh, No one's done as much work as Mike Heiser on this specific topic. Angels, demons, the unseen world, the worldview of the first century and uh, Second Temple Judaism. No, No one but Mike. And so this is this you used to have to buy this for 15 bucks to see it. As of four months ago, it's now free. It's, a, it's an award-winning documentary. Uh, it's, it's called The Unseen Realm, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, it's on the Logos Bible Software channel on YouTube, so you know it's legit. Okay? It's not some fringe channel, it's Logos, the champion Bible software, period. Okay. Mike Heiser was employed by, uh, by Logos, by the way. He was their resident scholar. Uh, had, had to do with much of the Faith Life Study Bible, which is the parent company of Logos itself. So he's a legitimate scholar. He's not like a science fiction writer, though interestingly, he wrote some science fiction too. Go figure. All right, let's move on. What about the rest of Genesis 6? Well, Eddie's going to cover most of it, but I'll cover 5 through 8. Okay. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So you got the Nephilim, you know, before I leave the Nephilim, just one more thing, ancient paganism and first century paganism. When you have worship of foreign deities other than Yahweh, did you know that there's tons of sex involved? You realize that, right? The temple prostitutes flowed in Ephesus in in Corinth. In the same way, much of the ancient paganism also involved sex. Okay, so, so don't be so surprised when you have demon worship, demon uh, activity, it's surrounding pagan gods and pagan deities. It, it, is, it is very common in the ancient world for worship and sexual activity to go together. In fact, this is one of the things that God destroyed the Israelites for. Remember around the golden calf? The languages they went out to play, play what? Not good. (laughs) Now you're not going to worship like pagans. We're not worshiping Yahweh with orgies. No, no. And so they get wiped out as judgment. You guys ever read that story? Talk about bizarre. Moses has the golden calves ground into powder and he makes the people drink it. And then he has the Levites come out and slaughter them with swords. It's a lot of blood, man. You know, the Bible's kind of rated R if it was in movie form. That's not going to be PG. <laughs> All right. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You got Nephilim. You got, uh, in fact, he, here, here's the way it was. Look at, look at Moses, how he wrote this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil Continually think about that description. So you have every single person on the earth and what is their condition? The intentions, motivations of the heart, that's the core of the being, the essence of the person is what? Only evil continually. Now this evil is spreading throughout the entire globe at the time. And verse six, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One of the questions I've always wrestled with when reading this text, and I've read it many times, is verse six. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And you can see down there in verse 7 as well, I am sorry that I have made them. And the reason this this always makes me struggle a bit is because I believe in the sovereignty of God from the rest of the Scripture, meaning that he sees and declares the end from the beginning, that Ephesians 1.11 says that he accomplishes his will constantly, without being hindered, and passage after passage I could quote. And so what, what do we do with this? Uh, the King James said he repented. That's not a good translation. Regret is better. So God is, is regretful. What do we do with this? Well, I, I've searched a lot of resources to find a succinct and good answer. And believe it or not, the best one I could find was in the Reformation Study Bible. How many of you have the Reformation Study Bible? Fantastic Bible, by the way. Okay, here's the text. This is succinct, and I think this explains it perfectly. Listen closely. Here is a reference to a change of attitude and action. There is no contradiction between this verse and passages teaching the changeless immutability of God. That means immutable means he doesn't change that God does not change his mind. And, and here's some text. I, I, I got some for you. Okay, here's Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 28 and 29. Samuel the prophet said to him, who is him? Saul, the first king of Israel. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. Who's the neighbor? Anyone know? David, that's right. Who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel. Notice how the G is capitalized. God. The glory of Israel will not lie or what? Have regret. He will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Hmm, that's interesting. It's pretty explicit. James 1.17 in the New Testament. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Look at this. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. These are just a few verses. We could look at many, many, many verses uh, to show this. But what I wanted you to see here is that God is here in verse six regretting, and then in verse seven is saying, I'm sorry that I've made man. And it does seem like it contradicts those three verses I just pulled up, right? Okay, so let's let's keep going. Remembering, this is Reformation Study Bible again, remembering that this description is anthropopathic, say, Pathic meaning emotions. Anthro, meaning, so how many of you have heard of anthropomorphosis? Heard that? It's it's ascribing to God human-like qualities that God does not have. He he shields you with a hand. God doesn't have a hand. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is said to uh, cover with his wings, but God doesn't have wings because he's a spirit. Spirits don't have wings. Well, angels have wings and they're spirits. Okay? So God does not have wings that we have knowledge of. Okay? One day we get to heaven and be surprised. There's no text in the Bible that says God has wings. <laughs> um, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about longing to gather Jerusalem as a hen that gathers her chicks. Okay? So what is this saying? It's using human emotion to give you the sense of God's heart. That's what's happening here. Let me say that again. The text is using human emotion to give you a sense of God's heart. We could see this in the New Testament. You remember Jesus, good friend, Lazarus dies. You remember that? And in a sense, uh, his disciples came and got him and said, look, your, your friend's really sick. You need to come help him. And so because he loved him, he stayed four days where he was. And then Jesus says to his disciples, come on, Lazarus is asleep. If he's asleep, he'll get up. No, Lazarus has died. Let's get going. And then, you know, the story, John 11, 10 and 11, uh, Jesus shows up, everyone's weeping. It's a funeral. Mary and Martha are distraught. And what, what does Jesus do? He weeps the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why? Because he was entering into the emotion of the situation, he was grieved at his perfect image and what sin does to it. The wages of sin is death. He was distraught seeing all these people mourning when originally this was not the deal. Only after sin was there death and mourning. And so in the same way here, this is, this is God entering into the emotion of the situation. Look, I don't know how many millions or billions of people are on the earth at this time, but they're all going to die, except for eight of them. That's a lot of death. And God is directly doing it. He causes the springs under the earth to come up and he causes the rain to pour down such that Not only do the people die, but so do the animals. And God has has an affection for animals too. Okay, And, and more on that next week. Let's keep going. God is depicted in terms of the human experience of knowledge and emotion. We must also recognize that the immutable and sovereign God deals appropriately with changes in human behavior. When people sin or repent of sin, he quote unquote changes his mind. Okay. Now that's in quotes for a reason with regard to the blessing or punishment appropriate to the situation. Just think Nineveh, All right? God says, he's going to destroy Nineveh. He sends the prophet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what happens? Even the animals end up in sackcloth and ashes. they like are going to wrap the animals up in cloths of repentance. And so the whole city repents and what God changes his mind, quote unquote, and they all receive mercy and grace instead of judgment. And the prophet's mad about it. He wanted to see them all go up in flames. And so here's, let me finish this before I keep going. I'm I'm not going to get through this if I don't. When people sin or repent of sin, he quote unquote changes his mind with regard to blessing or punishment appropriate to the situation all in accordance with his sovereign and eternal purposes. He works out all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Having, listen close, this is the answer. Having ordained every change in human behavior as well as his response to it. Now, now we can't do that, but God can. Think about it in the realm of prayer, okay? We know James says, you have not because you ask not. Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. Remember John Piper uh, commenting on that James passage says, look, if if you would have asked, the universe would have been different. So ask. But here's the deal. If you ask and your prayer gets answered, that was in the plan. If you don't ask and nothing happens as a result of your are not asking, that was also in the plan. And so in the same way, this was in the plan. And yet God, from an emotional perspective, get that. He sees his image drowning because of his judgment, and he's not happy about it. Okay? He's not happy about it. He's grieved in his heart. He's regretful that he made man, and, and the sin has so corrupted them. Look, every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's the opposite of God. And yet they bear his image. And he says, I have to start over. And I choose Noah. That's the end. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He never changes like we do on the basis of new information or unforeseen consequences. Because God is changeless in His being and eternally loyal to His covenant promises and unchanging decree, we can have firm confidence in Him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so verse 8, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Now, did you know that this is the first place in all the Bible, Genesis 6, where grace is explicitly mentioned to be landing on someone? And it's Noah. Now, interestingly, verse 9 says this, Noah was a righteous man in all his generation. Interestingly, look at the order. Grace first, resulting in righteousness. This is the way the gospel works. We don't live righteously or earn favor with God. No, God gives us grace unearned, undeserved, in fact, demerited favor. He says, it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with me pouring it on you. That's what it says. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, if any of us are right with God and we are going to survive the judgment to come, this is a water judgment, but there is a judgment of fire coming. We are warned. Even John, John the Baptist, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There is coming wrath. It's coming on all human beings. Those who will escape the wrath only escape in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whose perfection is gifted to all those who trust in Him. So that the favor and grace and mercy... Lands on them, and on the cross, Jesus receives the only evil, continuously ness of our hearts. Friends, this is what the cross is all about. Jesus willingly. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and I have the authority to pick it back up again. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and I, friends. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? So that you and I could be with him forever. In a new heavens and a new earth, void of sin, void of curse, void of depression, void of murder, void of racism, hatred, broken bodies, and on and on I could go. Jesus went to the cross. To reverse the curse, to receive it into himself so that he might defeat it. Jesus defeats your and my sin by absorbing it into his own body on the tree and receiving the punishment that is due you and I. This is the good news, friends. And so if you're a Christian tonight, put your name in verse eight. Chris found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Jeff found favor in in the eyes of the Lord. Fran found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you are saved and right with God, friends, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the mercy, grace, and love of God to put Jesus as a substitute for you. And maybe tonight you don't know that grace and mercy. You don't have assurance of salvation. You don't know if your sins are going to be on you on judgment day. Friends, I'm here to tell you, you can know. In fact, John, Jesus' disciple said in his gospel, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know. He wants you to be sure. How do I know? How can I be sure? Friends, you cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Even tonight, you ask him for mercy. You ask him for grace. You ask him to forgive you. You turn from your sin and turn to him and he will have mercy on you. That's the good news. Jesus is the savior, the only one. And so if Noah is saved, guess who saved him? Jesus. Even though Jesus wouldn't come for thousands of years, He was the one who paid for Noah's sin. It's amazing. And so my plea with you tonight is, make sure that you are right with God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's your only hope. It's my only hope. And it's what we celebrate every single Sunday when we take communion. And so the the brothers are gonna be coming around with the communion elements. These are physical representations of the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus. These will not save you, but they remind you of the salvation that is yours. And by you taking them, you are proclaiming something. You are saying something. You are saying, Jesus died for me. And you are saying his broken body and bloodshed are for my sin. And so tonight, maybe you're not a Christian, but you wanna become one, I would say take communion with us as an act of faith, as an act of saying, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to go and be with him in a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. So if you could stand, we're gonna sing a gospel song together. Don't take your communion elements until after we're all done singing. I'll come out and I will lead us all in taking communion together. So please sing. And as soon as we say uh, the last word of the last song, I'll come out and I'll lead us all in taking communion together.